Hello, Rich Bowlers here, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Dad Mindset Show. How are you doing today? I hope everything's okay and that you're being kind to yourself. Self-care is definitely at the top of my list at the moment. We've had a medley of full family flu, followed closely a couple of days later by full family COVID. So it's been an interesting month to say the least. Anyway, I digress. Hopefully, what you'll find today's guest, Professor Peter Miller has to say, is really interesting. Peter is Professor of Violence Prevention and Addiction Studies at Deakin University's School of Psychology. How he got into academia is fascinating, and they don't call him the bouncer professor for nothing. I've always been kind of intrigued by violence, what causes it, and trying to figure out basically how to make sure it doesn't happen in the first place. And a lot of what Peter does is running large studies to understand the impact of alcohol policy, as well as the genetic, developmental, and situational drivers of violence and aggression. So, Pete and I have had loads of chats about this, and I thought you might find it interesting as well. In this chat, Pete and I dive into all sorts of topics from why change is hard, bullying, schools in general, shame, and how aggression is often a response to fear. I hope you really enjoy this chat with Peter as much as I did. Pete Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rich. It's so good to get face to face with you and have a glass of wine. It's great. (laughs) Now, Pete, can you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself and what you do? Okay. Um, I'm a professor of violence prevention and addiction studies, and I work at the School of Psychology in Deakin University. I've been studying um, addiction and violence prevention for about 25 years. Um, I started off in the addiction space and I moved to violence prevention more when I came back from studying a prescription heroin trial in London. And when I got back here, nobody really cared about heroin at that stage. And there was a lot of stuff happening in nightclubs. Uh, A friend of mine who was a police officer, a senior police officer in Geelong, there was some awful stuff happening. Um... And we got together and did some studies and all of a sudden we were working on alcohol policy um, and interventions to try to reduce alcohol-related harm. These days I tend to run large studies understanding um, the impacts of alcohol policy, the genetic, developmental um, and situational drivers of violence and aggression Um, And when I say aggression, I mean everything from relational aggression, which we are focusing on more and more, which is the social manipulation and often unspoken aggression, through verbal aggression to physical aggression and fights. And we're looking at all of the factors around those. Um, And then we're also doing some really important stuff around um, cognitive, um, uh, cognitive ability to interpret cues and laws and things like that. So we're doing a lot of work around offending populations, particularly, again, violent offenders. All of this comes from starting in nightclubs and understanding why people hit each other. Yeah. It turned out to be a whole lot more complicated than I thought. (laughs) I mean, that's a great point, Pete. Can you actually go back to how you actually got started in the first place? Sure. Dad was a pharmacist and I was really um, always interested. He started the first pharmacy in Norlane Cario, um, and uh, I grew up around people who were on his methadone program. Right. And to me, as a kid, they were just people 
who were, went to dad for medicine every day didn't have any of the value judgments or anything like that. Um, and I saw them get better, but it took 10 years or 15 years. Why? Um, and, and there were so many people. Now, a lot of them didn't get better. And we've got to be really clear about that because people use drugs for a reason. And for many of them, and the vast, ma- people, vast majority of people who use drugs, have terrible complex histories, often involving sexual abuse, much of which is not remembered. But the trauma is there and it's awful. Um, creating a safe environment, a, a way in which people can address their physiological need to feel different to the way they do through things like methadone, and we've got a lot better drugs now, was really important. I was passionate about that space still. I saw a whole lot of people judging and making a lot of stupid comments. Yeah. <laughs> and I was big enough and ugly enough to call it the way I saw it <laughs> and continue to do so. Um, I did my PhD sitting around the Bowen Health Drug Alcohol Services, talking to people, understanding some of their behaviours. I, I have to be honest, I went home and cried most nights because of the awful stories they had. And, and it's heartbreaking to get to know these people and to get compassionate about it. After that, um, I got my PhD uh, and we went overseas to London. I worked on a prescription heroin trial. I came back and Australia had been through a heroin drought and there was um, uh, John Howard had just been in power for a decade or so. There was no investment in drug and alcohol treatment research and I was sort of sitting there going, hmm, I'm wondering what happened. Now, uh, in a number of ways, it was interesting because 2006-07, um, there was a number of really awful incidents in Geelong, bashings, rapes, things like that. And a lot of people were screaming, uh, moral panic sort of environment, we need to do stuff. And there was a whole lot of people making a whole lot of recommendations. And it was clear They'd not spent more than a couple of nights in nighttime economy, usually drunk, and they'd never tried to make someone who was drunk do something. Yeah. Fortunately, an awesome um, old police friend of mine called Bill Mathers happened to be the local inspector at the time. Um, and Bill and I had a chat and said, right, we should study this. We should actually look into what's happening, see what works, see what doesn't. And because we were both familiar with the nighttime environment, I said, well, we'll, we'll go out and we'll talk to people when they're drunk in the pubs. Yeah. And I happen to know four or five of the publicans. They're still publicans today. Three of them still run pubs here and they're still great. And we, still, we, we just literally got ethics yesterday to do another nightlife study trying to reduce sexual harassment. Um, so Geelong's really fortunate in some of the licensees we've got and that have been around for a long time. So we put in a grant, we got it, we put in another grant, we got it. All of a sudden, my career went nuts looking into alcohol-related violence. And as soon as we started studying it, it became more and more complex. Um, The first big rank cap off the rank was as soon as we looked at emergency department data and worked with the emergency department clinicians, it became clear that much more of what they were dealing with in terms of alcohol was family violence than nightlife violence, even though nightlife violence back then was what was on the front page of the newspapers yeah. every day. Um, second one was the complexity. Now, I was, hint- I was sort of hooking up 
starting to get to know international colleagues. And we happened to have in 2009 and 10 uh, some international symposiums about nightlife violence. Now, there was only, only about five or six people studying it around the world. Um, and a lot of them had used observational techniques. And it was funny because recently um, a PhD student of mine and I, he's also an ex-bouncer, we were trying to figure out what they'd done because these observational studies would say, we looked at fights in nightclubs and we attributed them to masculinity or to relationship problems and stuff like that. And we're sitting there scratching our heads going, we worked in nightclubs for years, stood up above, looked down on humans behaving like ants. We only ever saw the fight when it was happening, except when there was the show of masculinity stuff where, you know, you get the the footy players shoot-fronting each other. And it took us a while to figure out that actually these studies were done by people who'd never watched violence on a regular basis and attributed the events that they could see to specific behaviours and outcomes rather than having something like we have today, which is CCTV, where you can go back and look at all of those events. Yeah, the two, hour, two hours preceding. And everything that happened. But often it's not two hours preceding. It's like the millisecond beforehand where somebody shunned you and you've, you've felt shamed because there's four girls who you were all keen on. You've been shamed. You're intoxicated, so you, there's um, no disinhibition left. You're focused on this is the only thing that matters in the world. You turn around, you're furious, and somebody bumps into you and you swing at them. And none of it involves your prefrontal cortex because that was switched off a couple of drinks ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. So um, the more we got into it, the more fascinating it became. We started off looking at masculinity and we were going to talk about how I got into the study of masculinity. We started by saying, well, all of these people said masculinity is a really big thing. You know, it's all about masculine shows. And we said, well... So we're social scientists. I'm technically a sociologist, but also um, my undergrad and postdoc work was all in psychology. So I call myself some sort of hybrid. What I know is people are complex. Um, and a lot of what I was looking at in the literature didn't reflect the people I knew. And a lot of the other stuff that went on, like when you're a bouncer and you're dealing with people and they come in every night for a year and one night they go bonkers. And hit people, and then they, and then they don't. Yeah. And you go, okay, well, all of that stuff that they talk about, you know, their masculinity didn't change, their perceptions of that didn't change. What were the other things that happened? And often, you know, sometimes it was about levels of intoxication or combinations of drugs. It was really important. We saw it anecdotally then. I'm still not allowed to get people really heavily intoxicated and feed them with methamphetamines at the same time and then provoke them. Yeah. I don't know why ethics won't let me do that. Yeah, that's weird. <laughs> um, but what we did do was start to look at a whole lot of important psychological constructs, particularly from the more experimental and much more reliable evidence that demonstrated things like um, and it's not rocket science necessarily. It's science, but not rocket science. So if you're a trade aggressive, if you have a more aggressive personality, um, you're more likely to get into fights. Uh, as you know, my question always goes to, but why are you trade aggressive? <laughs> yeah. And we'll get to the power thing. But why do you want power? So why? 
Um, so, so can you do like when you say trade aggressive, what do you mean there? So basically, you're a more aggressive person. You're angrier. You respond, and and there's these big long psychological surveys that you fill out, and they test, they ask you the question three different ways, and they look at whether you think the world's a nasty place or not, whether it's got it in for you and things like that. So we were going along, and we started to to measure trade aggression along with conformity to masculine norms, and then we added in, oh, hang on. There's a literature that says it's about impulsivity. So we added in impulsivity as well. So are you an impulsive person? Um, every time we measured it, every time we added a variable, the impact of masculinity became less. What was overwhelming, though, was being intoxicated and a heavy drinker was much more predictive already so um, we talk about odds ratios a lot. Um, you were 2.6 times more likely to be in a fight in a bar if you're a heavy drinker on rig normally. Yeah. Whereas if you conform to masculine norms, you're about 1.3 times more likely. And some of those norms were different to others. So some of them didn't matter. Um, some of them mattered a lot. And particularly one, which was called violence. So you've got to go back to, hang on. What, is, what does masculinity and norms mean? And when did they develop these scales? So they developed these scales in the 70s and 80s. And they asked a whole lot of American college students. Now, we were doing the same thing. We were asking uni students. I asked a whole lot of American students all these questions and they figure out the people who are most likely to get into fights um, are these pe- people who answered this way on that question and therefore we'll call that masculinity. What they did though, was they created what we call a correlate, an autocorrelation so that by, ask, by attributing that to masculinity and saying violence, experience of previous violence is a part of masculinity, you, every violent person, every person who being engaged in violence was automatically going to be called masculine. Yeah. Right? So the floor, the, and then there was a whole lot of qualitative studies as well. All of these qualitative studies went and said, was it your masculinity that caused that? They never said, are you an angry person? What sort of childhood did you have? Now, I had a, a student who uh, uh, was an honour student for us, fourth year psychology student, who came along and said, look, I grew up in a community where it was really violent. Can we, can we ask about how the parental relationship, the father and son, we were still focused mostly on guys then. We were still talking to primarily university student samples. And I said, yeah, that looks fantastic. So we did this study and we said, okay, so what's the father-son relationship? And there was validated measures out there. So if your father hit you as a boy, as a child, the question didn't actually ask whether your mother hit you. (laughs) Which is really important. I was going to say this. <laughs> which is really important. It's different, but remains important. Yeah. You are four times, four point six times more likely. So four point six times for whether, and this is, if you ended up fighting in a bar as an adult. Wow. Right. Okay. So father hitting. Now at that stage in life and that stage of my career, we were focused. We had gone and looked at the literature and thought, okay, so does that mean corporal punishment? Um, Or does it mean child abuse? Um, And they're difficult to tease apart because, as you can imagine, often they're the uh, 
a, an abusive incident is is masked or justified through corporal punishment. Uh, these days, I would say if you're an adult, hitting a child is abuse. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. No two ways about it. And we know now just how awful that is. 52 countries in the world legally ban it. We found that childhood corporal punishment, so like I said, 4.6 times more likely for boys. Girls is a lot more complicated um, because they don't act in that in the same way. Because the developmental literature, so we work, I, live, I work within a large group of developmental psychologists um, and their evidence tells us really importantly that outcomes are not, there's not a single outcome for a single stimulant. And when you talk about development pathways, there's kind of three, there's two major ones and then there's the kind of one in the middle where it's a bit of everything, not, not so much either way. But as things get more extreme, you get two, internalising and externalising. Now, externalising gets you all of the attention. It's the aggression, uh, violence, uh, antisocial behaviour internalizing is of course the biggest problem we have in our society it's anxiety depression um, and a range of other mental health problems that are all internalized and then play out in different ways and i want to put in there some across all of those is narcissism as well so we tend to think of narcissists of people like donald trump please don't sue me mr trump He's a, and he's one form of a narcissist, but actually there's quite a few different forms and particularly vulnerable narcissists are really interesting. Not the grandiose narcissist at the gym. Um, it's the vulnerable narcissist can be quite interesting, particularly when it comes to violence. Um, so That just made me think of the story we were talking about earlier, Ender's brother <clears throat> in Ender's Game. I don't remember the end of the story. <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> we literally, because that's where we walked mm. in. At, and that, I remember that as being like, his brother would would basically, essentially kill anyone that had seen him in a vulnerable situation. Yeah. Is that is that kind of what that is? That- it can be, yeah, absolutely. So um, narcissists, and it's, it's really important to go and look at that, but to also understand that they come from a place of trauma. Um, and narcissists will do many things to try to protect their ego because ultimately their ego is fragile and built on externalizing image. Um, so internalizing, externalizing pathways, um, narcissism sort of crosses a lot of that because nothing's as simple as the psychological boxes we like to create. <laughs> what? You mean we can't just be put into simple pigeonholes, Pete? <laughs> That's a sociologist in me coming in. Um, and, and, you know, uh, I think that's it's really important when we talk about things like masculinity and aggression. When you talk about aggression, actually, most of the people who are aggressive in our society are very, very successful and important in our society and community and have been historically vital. Aggression in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing until it starts to hurt somebody else. Um, and then it that line between what we call aggression and we call violence and and a lot of people get really confused between the two and no wonder i think most of us are still confused between what is violence what is aggression um and and what are the outcomes of that aggression can obviously be if you're in a sporting environment can be important to a point but then it becomes inappropriate at some level too um we can go back and talk to alfie cohen about 
competition and violence yeah. and aggression. I think uh, <laughs> I'm still trying to understand that part of the whole picture. So we started to, we have been doing more and more studies around those developmental pathways into violence and aggression while still studying the important elements of the context because we know there are, in the nightlife context, really important things we can do to reduce harm that are contextual, so reducing the availability or strength of alcohol, improving the culture of places where people are drinking, surveillance and those sort of things. But when it comes to who's more violent and who's more aggressive, we got back to these issues of masculinity. And when we started to really unpack what masculinity is, we found less and less of what we call the variance, that the actual that matters being explained by attitudes around what is a man and what is not. And we found more and more importance around trauma and fear fear of the situation and then we did some fun stuff so first of all we started asking girls the same sort of questions and we found that actually girls tend to load in the same ways when they're aggressive so it's not sex it's attitudes Hmm. it's not masculine or feminine it's about personality and i want to come back to that again and again and again because when you think about it you're talking about a construct that, that assigns 50% of the population to thinking one way yeah. and 50% to think the other way simply because of our plumbing. And we all know that's not true. So what is, what then becomes the issues around I was going to say, so what do you put in place? How do we talk about this? Well, first of all, I think uh, <laughs> if we – sorry, we've got noises happening from children <laughs> – um, first of all, I mean, if we want to jump to what do we think about, I think the really important thing is to, to stop talking about gender and or sex and start talking about what is a good person um, or what are the, the behaviours we want to see versus not. And I wouldn't get too caught in the verses because I think, again, most of that comes from fear and trauma. Hmm. Understanding why people behave aggressively um, is crucially important. At the moment, we're in this really vicious cycle of labelling and blaming, not understanding. If you start to look at the predictors of serious violence, you're talking about primarily mental health and trauma. These are the overwhelming predictors. Yes, men experience and act that out more. That's not because um, men or women experience more or less trauma as children because men externalise it more partially because of our genetics and there's very important small and subtle genetic differences in the brain. There's a fantastic book if people want to understand violence called The Anatomy of Violence that really explains this really comprehensively. The biggest predictor of whether you're extremely violent as an adult, so we are talking, you know, not even like 0.5%, is whether you have a low resting heart rate as a child. Wow. (laughs) So um, it's not all biodeterministic, as uh, we've talked about, and I think it's important for people to understand that um, a big predictor of extreme violence is genetics and mental health. And 
The genetic switch only gets turned on if you're in a dangerous environment. So it's a gene environment interaction. Welcome to being a human. Hmm. Being human means you've got a genetic predisposition to pass on your genes. Some of us actually don't, and there's reasons around that. Um, but for the most part, that's our goal, or to support the community to pass on their genes. Um, and if you're in a dangerous environment, you will require violence to do that, and you will require um, a lot of different actions, and your body will actually mature faster, um, and you will breed more, and you'll be more fertile. So we're not terribly fertile these days, and a lot of people want to blame hormones and all those other things. Sure, that might be a case. But also, we're not really in danger in the same way. We're, it's never been safer in Australia, America, well, America's doubtful, <laughs> Canada, the UK, Europe, yep. you know, Western society to a large degree. <clears throat> um, so that interaction is really important. But when we go back to these concepts such as masculinity, first of all, we've got to ask what people are asking when they say masculinity causes X. We started to also then get curious about, well, what do you mean when you talk about masculinity? Um, and I don't know how much people have actually thought about it. Um, it was kind of fun. I think most people, so particularly in uh, places like Australia, the UK, um, Canada, maybe to a lesser degree America, I'm not sure where the cultural trends are there. Um, it's changing hugely, this notion of being a man, but also at the same time about being a woman. Gender roles are breaking down. Yeah. And there's good reasons for that. Um, again, we don't have all of those stimuli around us saying you have to take on a specific role so that we can survive. Um, in this modern context, the question of what is a person versus what is a man and what is a woman is becoming very much greyer. But I think um, we've, we've got lost in this um, gender discussion to a large degree and attributed a whole lot of things that are actually universal. You know, what is a good person? A non-aggressive person. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. Um, Oh, sorry, and good, bad is, again, a judgment value. Again, I would understand aggressive as being a response to fear. Trying to understand that is more important than the labelling um, and blaming that we're seeing at the moment. Yep. Um, so we went out and in, in part of all of the different studies we've been doing, uh, we did recently go and spend a year asking people um, right across an age range. It wasn't a huge sample because um, we did it qualitatively, so like hour-long interviews and we asked people, so what does being manly or masculine mean and what does being feminine mean to you? Um, masculine was fascinating. So the biggest, the most popular answer was big was big. Why? <laughs> not aggressive, not successful, not good protector, not everything like that. It was just big. <laughs> was that because you were sitting opposite them? And that it was wasn't the first me. <laughs> to be, no, it wasn't me. Um, um, we had three interviewers. Uh, actually, we had, uh, sorry, five interviewers and different genders. Right. Um, so, no, it wasn't that effect. Um, 
say the first word that springs to mind. <laughs> yeah, no, and it was really interesting, and it and it sort of shows you on a lot of levels how shallow the concept is when you actually ask. Or just how little people think about this stuff. Yeah. Um, then there was a number of other sort of responses around um, certain roles people fulfil. Um, fathers, supplier, uh, um, not suppliers, um, <laughs> provide providers. Yep. Um, and then there was some great narratives at the end around actually we tend particularly saying we don't see the concept as being valid anymore. Um, we think that's an old way of thinking. Now, this was more the young people, but actually you'd be surprised at how many older people were thinking about that as well and just saying, you know, I grew up under this stuff of be a man. Yeah. But actually that be a man stuff. It was rubbish and it was just, again, one of the biggest drivers coming back to our core drivers is not only passing on our genes but belonging to the group because if we don't belong to the group. Fitting in. Well, if we don't belong to the group, we're going to get eaten, right? (laughs) I mean, we've got a fundamental fear, like a very well-founded one. Like you get kicked out of the tribe, you're not surviving. Yeah, and we did talk about, you know, the notion that I, I think everybody expects that we've has somehow adapted, but our genes took an awful long time to figure out what made us live and, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, and we've only been doing this socialisation stuff for a couple of hundred. Yeah. We really haven't genetically changed that much. That doesn't mean we can't change, and I think to go back and say genes, environment are really they interact so we can change the environment but our genes might be a bit slower <laughs> yeah yeah which is the biggest lever we can pull <laughs> yeah or the, the easiest lever to pull and i think that's been really um, interestingly borne out for you know sort of nerds like me who love to try to understand genes too because um you know remember the the excitement when we mapped the human genome yeah it wasn't that long ago well, we thought it was going to cure everything it was going to cure everything. cure cancer everything we're so complex. Yeah. I think in, in a lot of my narratives, I try to get that across before anything else. If you think about the stuff that made you do stuff over the last week, and then you think about how many times you were actually pretty much acting again on automatic because that's the way your parents did it, um, you'll find that you're really complex and the vast majority of us are really complex. But do, do you think that's why what you were referring to earlier about setting the environment to actually set yourself up for success if you have a a particular way that you want to show up in the world Mm. you can actually it's like if you're trying to cut down on eating chocolate you just remove all the chocolates from the house because when you're tired you need that sugar hit just before bedtime the last thing you want to do is open the you know the tea cupboard and say oh there's some chocolate there i'll just i'll just decide not to eat it no you got to set the environment is that sort of yeah i became the most unpopular person at work because at three o'clock in the afternoon i would eat chocolate if it was there we had a whole lot of those fundraising chocolates on the table just outside my office and i said i'm sorry but we study obesity and i desperately need that chocolate not to be there yeah. Um, and to my work's credit, they, they listened eventually and took it away. Um, but yeah, I wasn't very popular. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but so environments are really important. And I think, you know, uh, as we go on, we understand that a lot of the stuff that was called manliness and masculinity and, and framed often within that, but often is actually just brutality and this notion that you can toughen people up by being cruel to them. Many other of your 
the people you've spoken to have done it far more eloquently. But to me, um, creating safe environments comes first. We know that that first thousand days of life, but the first um, 5,000 days, and being in safe environments creates the strongest, most resilient person. All these resilience yeah. training, I'm, I, I don't buy but, it at all. I mean, with it, with that sort of the first three years, Pete, I mean, does that always, like, there's obviously physical violence, but is it all, all also verbal cues as well? The, it's, it's even non-verbal. Yeah. yeah so, so relational everything. aggression. Yeah, everything. Um, but I think, you know, with, within that context, you've also got to create environments where we also understand and don't and, and stop judging and blaming and start trying to understand. If you walk into a room trying to understand rather than in that position of I'm going to find somebody to blame, we all act half the time we don't know, a lot more than half the time we don't know why. It's about trying to create environments where people can feel safe. Yeah. Because from safety is where we actually stop triggering those genes and go forward. Now, many of us, most of us, and you and I talked about sleep deprivation. Um, I don't know what yours was like. I know that I acted many times in ways I was totally gobsmacked. I could not believe how my father came out in me. Yeah. But I also instantaneously understood that he was mirroring his father. Yeah who I have no doubt went back generations. Um, and I think that, you know, we need to understand a lot of those things and, and we do need educations. Everybody talks about education and it never works because we never think we're going to be the person. Gonna say, let's not get into learning speak. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't go uh, into the lessons you can learn That's in right. life. Yeah, Rich. Yeah. The lessons. <laughs> um, but I think it, it, there is a lot of stuff around out there that it's important to try to build that information, but also, I, I guess. Well, look, when, I mean, when you when you say information, Pete, it, it almost sounds like that's very much like a system through thing. That's that's like your brain thinking stuff through your your prefrontal cortex. Whereas it sounds like we just need to actually build the the systems and environments around ourselves to to, to sort of cushion us into the way of being rather than having to think these things through or or is it more of a training thing where you've modeled it from someone else is so, that the way or so this is from the guy who sent me a thing about um bracket creep in jobs right <laughs> um and i think that's incredibly important because we need so a lot of things that we think we should act on we can act on are actually things we need policies to support yeah guide rails yeah and we need to go back to understanding and setting up and advocating for policies that support people in families a lot of the stuff we're talking about particularly more disadvantaged families we're talking about intergenerational change we've got to acknowledge that a lot of us won't change very much if at all change is hard it's really really hard don't believe any diet books most (laughs) exercise books are wrong they're right in the short term and they're wrong in the long term for most of us most of the time and it's the same with behavior change if you think behave you know a lot of people make a lot of money out of behavior change a lot of my colleagues do and um uh, the evidence stands in stark contrast particularly in my world of addiction and violence once those triggers have gone um, once the trauma that creates those behaviors has been acted um 
it's the extraordinary individual who even manages to put some sort of lid on it, let alone turn it into a wow. different direction. And, I mean, just when you say that, Pete, it, the questions that jump into my head like a manifold, but the straight away there's the thought of, is it like you 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 get you you get addicted to a certain substance, say alcohol or something like that, you have a really bad outcome, but it takes an incredibly bad situation to actually tip someone over the edge, like before you can actually control it again? Or is it much more the the other side of things where it's so much easier to get into, so much harder to get out of because the, there's almost there's also physiological sort of rewards there as well. You know, it's like bit, the, the the chemical hits absolutely. and all that sort of wiring that goes on in your head. Yeah, and then you've got environment. So, and and we live in this scary environment in the alcohol space where a our governments are completely sold out to the alcohol industry, and b the alcohol and gambling industries have been studying psychology just like me for just a really game long time. It, game the system. Well, so they know what positive reward pathways are yeah. and they know that drinking Intermittent alcohol... Intermittent rewards in gambling, yep. all that sort of stuff. Well, it's in alcohol too. Yeah. Um, and we know how strong the reward pathways are around alcohol and they know when to, now with all of the home delivery and everybody's got an app to order their alcohol, they know when to ping it, um, what your price point is. Yeah. And um, and what you what drink you'd probably buy and wouldn't try it buy. So those sort of spaces are scary too. Yeah, even like the the type of drink at the time of day. Yep. That yeah, you know, after a certain things happened or absolutely. Um, but that 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 horrifies me because that that harkens back to the 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 first um, sort of I think it was a data analyst that discovered uh, I think it was Walmart. Oh yeah, uh, where they they basically were studying the data on mm. buying buying cycles and patterns and so on, and they discovered that they could actually discover or discern when someone was pregnant, oftentimes before the person knew they were pregnant themselves. To the extent where there's one anecdote where this um, this irate father storms into one of the stores and demands to know oh, yes. the, why the manager had sent, like they, they'd, they'd posted a, a catalogue with baby products to his 14-year-old daughter and just basically ripped a hole in this manager and stormed out. And then three weeks later, came back in with his tail between his legs to apologise because his daughter actually was pregnant. And, and they learned, oh, we have to hide the baby adverts amongst the gardening gear so yep. that it's not so overt that we know what's going on here. Like, it, have, are they really gaming the system that much now? There's just, such a yeah there's not even a conch i mean um it's funny because a lot of us want to think of things like corporations and algorithms as evil (laughs) well as kevin kelly would say there's no conspiracy no one's organized enough (laughs) i've been in every c-suite yeah yeah Yeah, absolutely there's just um a a series of decisions being made all by the kpi or or the things that people are facing the system that drives the outcome yeah, and I think we can change systems, but of course, um, there's a lot of things against us. Vested interest is, is but that goes right to like co- cultures and corporations as well, doesn't it? You know, Absolutely. setting the culture is actually one of the hardest things. But once you've set it, you know, it's like you've set the guide rails again, and then mm. then business as usual becomes so much easier to to maintain. But it's it's if you start out with a bad culture, or it, 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 I guess in this case, if you start out with something that's going to set you up for addiction, you, you're screwed. Yeah, and I think addiction is really important just to go back to because, again, um, like I was saying before, the vast majority of people who are heavily addicted to 
stronger drugs, and alcohol is one of the strongest. It's a whole-of-brain drug compared to most of the other drugs which attack particular pathways. It takes a lifetime to get there, so it's generally not that I took a hit of heroin and was hooked. That's, yeah. what, that's what the people experience it like. But if you look at their pathways and listen to their stories, in fact, they were on that trajectory quite often for a very, very long time. There's always an exception to a rule. Yeah. But I tell you, they're very, very rare. And, and I remember many people telling me that story and then telling me about how they were smoking cannabis at 13 and drinking alcohol at 11. Yeah. Well, you, you hear that about Vietnam vets, don't you? Yeah. Who, who basically experienced a lot of heroin while they were over in Vietnam. And then they came back and the very few of them actually yeah. continued. Yeah. Absolutely. But the Vietnam thing brings up a really important thing that we were going to talk about also, which was the impact of something like bullying. So when we talk about um, the impact of all of these childhood experiences and neglect and abuse as a child and corporal punishment, as I said, they, they can account for quite a strong proportion of somebody developing problems or, or behaviours that are antisocial later in life. But bullying can often be two to four times more important because, um, and we're still very much in the theory phase around this, the, the data's strong in terms of showing the prediction, but of course understanding um, the causal pathways is going to be really, really complicated and, yeah, tens of millions of dollars worth of research <laughs> that I'm not going to get to do. Um, but it looks like it's really important as you go through the development phase of puberty and become an adult genetically, um, not socially, if you're experiencing something that takes away your agency, that makes you feel awful or makes you feel physically afraid, it can again trigger genetic responses. So a large proportion of people who are violent as adults were bullied as children yeah. and of course i don't um i don't profess to have studied it but i cannot off the top of my head remember a case of a shooting in america that didn't have a child who was bullied behind it with access to a gun yeah wow um and and this is important stuff and bullying again and i think we we've talked about we've mentioned trauma quite a lot but trauma is subjective you know, the notion that I can judge whether your trauma is bad enough or not um, is just flawed. Yeah. Ultimately, um, shame is one of the most traumatic experiences. In our, in our recent social history... <laughs> in our, just, just makes me think of so many ways that, like, you only have to look a like, couple of decades back and shame was just such a tool well, for... Delivering outcomes in children. I've watched a school destroy children oh, using right. shame, and and this was in Not, the last few years. Oh, um, and a lot of our schools do it. They want to write the names of children, prep children, for misbehaving. But actually, what they're doing is they're shaming children for being children, shaming children to conform to an idea that they think. Which is even yeah. a crazy idea, because actually, in the modern environment, we don't want children to work in factories. No. That's done. Past governments yeah. have made sure we don't have any factories for yeah. you to sit down and work in. Yeah. So now we want people who are creative, not people think who are... Think outside the box. Yeah, yeah, think outside the box, create the new thing. But our school systems are actually completely designed the opposite way. So if yeah. you put your name, the kid's name on a board, you're shaming them, you're creating trauma, 
and you're guaranteeing they don't want to learn because that's what they associate. And once you're shamed, whether you're a young adult, a child or an adult, you just remember the shame, not the lesson. That's (laughs) Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, You don't thank that person. Oh, thanks for shaming me. I really took that lesson on board and I, I, yeah, I promise to do better next time. And and like you, I wish I'd learned that lesson (laughs) a really, really long time ago. Um, But I think it is really important in understanding the sort of things that we can respond to and the ways in which we can think about engaging, even as parents and and dads. I was going to say, yeah, what are the lessons you've taken away? Because I I remember you you mentioned one study that was being carried out. Is it in Northern Territories around bullying and actually giving people the tools to actually to deal with that in a much more pragmatic way? So it was an intervention without a study. Right, um, there's gotcha. lots okay. of interventions without yeah. studies, and you know, in my world, that's unfortunate because so often people will say to me, "This worked really well," yeah, and you go, "Look, I like you, and I think you probably are well-meaning." Are, well, yeah. I know you're well-meaning, whether it actually worked or not, and we study these interventions all the time, and it's awful to have to tell people, "No, it didn't oh, have an yeah. impact." Yeah, because I want the panacea, Pete. I want the panacea. Well, I mean, so in this one, it it at least seemed like a good idea. And and so up there, what they did was they introduced a system whereby children were taught when somebody is um, being nasty to you through to hitting you, uh, and we need to come back to that in terms of gender because the gender stuff's biological at some stages. Um, When somebody is hurting you to turn around and loudly say you're hurting my feelings even if that's a physical attack and then if that person comes again you say why do you need to hurt my feelings that's a really powerful question i wonder you know you think in life if and and having the courage to do that i think we have to instill in our children very young um well, you have to tra- you'd have to train yourself to do it because yeah. to be able to respond in that situation takes a certain level of cool-headedness. And you have to create an environment. Have. And I think it might work well in a, you know, a very small private school, for example, um, where there's adequate levels of staff coverage hmm. and you're not already talking about traumatised children. Yeah. Because the notion that a child will understand why they're trying to do that, it's more trying to get them to reflect Yeah, to around, stop and think. To stop and think. Because they probably don't want to. Um, most people who study bullying say the first thing you need to do is help the bully. Yeah. Because the person... Look at, look at the, the, the history behind the bully. And so often you see fear, fear and fear like in a new environment or they're in an environment where they feel afraid. They need to control the environment. They control the environment through... Or they don't feel agency elsewhere, so they're going to try and enact it. Absolutely. Um, and of course that becomes really difficult. How do you act on somebody's home? Um, the only thing you can do really is try to make that child feel safe feel enough, yeah. but also to put in place those constraints. And I think that's an important part of all of these interventions is to understand that there's a level where other people's safety, emotional or physical, matters and you need to constrain the behaviours of the other person. Yeah. Um, so many people in our society suffer a level of mental discomfort and um, lack of well-being that makes them dangerous for other people. And we actually need institutions that can 
manage them compassionately. That's right. Because otherwise we just incarcerate them and, and punish them, expecting them to, you know, ah, oh, yeah, I totally get it. Thanks mm. for punishing me. I won't do it again. Yeah. And a loss of, you know, the notion of punishment. Um, <laughs> we go back to Alfie. Hope. Alfie has a lot to say about that. Yeah. Hopefully we move on from that someday. <laughs> Certainly we're keen to, you know, reform. I mean, we live in Geelong where we have four big, massive prisons right next to our two most deprived suburbs in this in the state um and the irony is not lost at all you know the revolving door between the two is huge um and rethinking the notion of punishment is going to save us a lot of tax dollars but it's also going to mean that in future generations we're dealing with different issues at a much nicer level i think yeah um so getting back, I mean, because you said about the gender stuff yep. and violence, and obviously that was something you wanted to return to. Yeah, I think there's important physiological differences between boys and girls at young ages in terms of their social development. I'm pretty sure Maggie Dent talked to you about it as well, um, that girls tend to be develop more soci- socially more quickly and boys tend to, to develop physical responses or don't have those same responses now obviously if you look at environmental uh, uh, ecological sort of history and psychology you can understand the evolution of these things um, but it's important at a physiological level because when a boy is socially threatened or emotionally threatened they will often respond physically. And to them, the emotional shame or the social and relational shame is far more damaging. Far more painful. Far more painful than a physical. So often the physical rough play and physical hitting is actually not necessarily even a punishment or a bad thing. Um, of course, the context matters, right, hugely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But if, if somebody, if they're messing around, that physical cannot be. Now, this is such a huge changing space, but I still think that we need to be considering that when we're talking about the ways in which we understand aggression and, and you know, in inverted commas, violence, particularly in schoolyards and particularly in the developmental context of children. Because so often a boy will be so much more damaged by verbal, but a girl will be so much more terrified by physical. Hmm. Um, and how that plays out later in life, I don't think we've got anywhere near enough data. Maybe we, we won't have great data going forward. Um, we've got a great study from America where they have no privacy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so some researchers in, a, in, a, I'm in a, the International Society that was for Research on Aggression and they looked at CCTV fact footage of all of the schools. Now, I mean, you can't do that in Australia. <laughs> and they followed physical incidents between boys. And they followed like this ripple effect of violence that went back to social snobbing from sometimes girls, sometimes boys, but most often popular kids. Yeah. Um, so and they felt girls like towards outcasts. boys. So they're already threatened, yep. feeling like they're in the out. Outliers yeah. or the outgroup. Yeah, and this snobbing and relational behaviour. But then again, if you go and talk to kids who are popular at school and get inside their heads, <laughs> um, what you find is so often, particularly people who are pretty, 
they're terrified that one day that, that they're only valued for their looks. Yeah. They're only valued for the thing, right? Whether that's sport or whatever. That, that thing that undermines narcissists remains with them as well. If you're valued because you're of an external a, a doll, yeah. a, a pretty doll or a handsome guy and that's your own the thing that's going for you rather than your personality or intellect or your comedy. That can be just as undermining and create just as much doubt as to why people then turn around and engage in relational aggression. Now, we're starting to study this. We've got a few PhD students on it. I can't wait. Sometimes you just <laughs> wish you could hit the time machine and jump forward a couple of years because... Yeah. I think it's really fascinating to understand where that stuff sort of starts to come from as well because it creates so much insecurity in yeah. so many people. So, I mean, what's the what, what's your thinking, Pete, around if you could wave a magic wand, like how would you set up schools now? What with what you've what you've studied, what you know, how how can we better help create environments? I, there are some schools out there that are well on the way. Um, I think, and I don't, I'm not an educational researcher, so I think in, in the space of relationships to avoid aggression and in terms of gender relations, I think there are a number of elements there. First of all, I would try to make sure that we have safe spaces and safe spaces create an openness for everybody. Um, they, they value people not obviously on their gender. I mean, equity is so incredibly important um, that... So taking people down to the, the, the funda inherent goodness, like really sort of levelling the playing field in, situa- in as many situations as possible so it's not about, you know, born attributes and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, with no disrespect to a lot of sporting people... Um, most of us and most of them have genetic attributes that predispose us to be good at something. Yeah. Ian Forbes, feet. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that doesn't mean they don't work hard to get there. But, you know, uh, you don't see a short swimmer these days, do you? No. Nah. In the Olympics. Look at the Australian or a footy inst- player. Institute of Sport going yeah. around and tapping yeah. people on the shoulders. You'll make a great rower. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and we need to be really aware of that when we're talking about our children and the reification. So reification means making gods out of things. Yeah. And, and it's insane that we call people heroes for playing a game of sport, kicking a bit of leather around or throwing something at somebody else. That's insanity. We really need to talk about that culture one day. Well, I mean, look at the role model we're <coughs> setting there for our kids. Especially yeah. when, you know, they can do something pretty horrific and get away with it with just a, a one match ban or something like yeah. that, and it's it's kind of you know sanctioned. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a lot more than sanctioned. Yeah, encouraged. Yeah, a lot of it's encouraged. Um, so going back to the schools, um, I would be talking about respectful relationships, regardless of um, gender. That's that's irrelevant in the space of being respectful towards other people, towards their bodies, towards their feelings um, is really important. Understanding and teaching the staff and students very early on, if somebody's being aggressive to you, it's because they're not well. It's got nothing to do with you. Um, Unfortunately, kids don't feel it that way and it never has felt that way for anybody who's ever been bullied or punched or anything like that. But that is the reality. 
understanding why perpetrators behave in that way and helping kids to understand that. Creating a safe space for people to feel and that feelings are good and feelings are okay. Um, that goes to address all of the problems that we talk about, masculinity or femininity later in life, the internalising or externalising of different feelings and different behaviours. Um, obviously, get rid of shame and guilt uh, in schools. Um, discourage it wherever possible. Um, try to engage parents. Because, I mean, poor old schools are meant to fix everything yeah, in the world. That's right. right? And we as parents have a huge role to play here. Everybody has a huge role all the, the village. time. Yeah. And I think there's really challenging, important places to try to engage in that. You and I have talked about some examples of where male friends behave inappropriately, this notion of trying to be the positive bystander. But the consequences are really challenging too in yeah. those spaces. Calling stuff out. Calling stuff out. Trying to do it in a way that's not shaming. Because mm. again, as yeah. soon as you do it in a way that shames somebody, they just remember the shame. That's gone. And certainly in my world, I've done that a lot of times. And I failed most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, that's a really important thing. We should never talk about failure. We should talk about learning a lesson. Yes, a lesson. <laughs> <laughs> um, but learning a lesson around... Um, Treating, treating failure as being the opportunity to learn a lesson. I think one of yeah. your, your speakers has talked about that before, but it's incredibly important because um, we have so much language around failure these days and built into all of that goes shame and all People those other things. People are petrified by it. Absolutely, yeah. you know, sort of frozen with the fear of, of you know, committing a single foot out of, out of step. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a terrible thing. Um, Trying to create environments. I think in terms of educational facilities, you, back to your question, um, obviously looking at uh, understanding the child and what their desires and needs and building the education more around that. It depends on what your institution wants. If you want a military school, well, you know, we already know how to do We those. know the recipe there. Yeah. Um, and those people go on to do great warriors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Carry out orders uh, really well. Yeah, carry out orders really well. Um, and they have to break them down and build them back up. Um, and in terms of the masculinity and the narratives around that, we need to be really cautious around both boys and girls because anything that stereotypes people by gender, by sex, is fundamentally broken. We need to talk about the behaviours that... Um, as a society or as people we value and about our values and saying whether it's caring or strength or equity or whatever you want to instill in your children, not to make it gendered, you know. Yeah. Um, I love it when I'm at the gym and there's a girl who's stronger than me. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. Um, same with guys too. It's not <laughs> – uh, it's great, you know, being an old bloke, it's kind of fun to see that these days. Um, but I think that's really important to leave those things behind, but also not to cast blame on previous generations. They were who they were, and I think for they, the most they part. did the best with the tools they had, essentially. I don't think anyone goes out of their way to do bad stuff. Yep. I think, you know, you can be predisposed <laughs> by the way you've been brought up Absolutely. to sort of 
lean you a certain way, but... Yeah, it becomes difficult when you're trying to discuss that in a court of law. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I think understanding development is a crucial thing yeah. um, for all of us as parents, um, as teachers. I think what, they don't what, teach what anywhere would you say near for, enough. What would you say to new parents or, or just parents in general about understanding development? Where, where would you start? I, I don't know if there's a textbook to say, go yeah. and read this, but you need, I, I think having a big chart on the wall saying, I expect my child to be able to go to the toilet between the age of two and four um, on their own and then probably beside that. And if they don't, don't worry about it because <laughs> they'll get there. Yeah. I expect that my children will want to be around me um, at night time and probably won't want to go to sleep on their own until they're about 12 and hit puberty. Why? Because a couple of thousand years ago, that's how that's they the survived. the safest place to be. That's the safest place to be. Yeah. And you want your children to feel safe. And when they feel safe, then they will do and what they do. And when you think the, the worst thing, if, if you're actually in that situation and, and, and that's the driver for trying to snuggle in with your parents, imagine being told, no, no, you have to go in that room and sleep on your own. Get yeah. through this. Yeah. I'm not here for you. Um, and, yeah, the, the question about the, the trauma that's involved in that. So, you know, if a child's crying... Be nice to them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know how we got onto these subjects with masculinity, but I think it is important to, to in a lot of ways. Well, there's a you lot know, of the study. expectations that get put passed down, certainly on to, to boys. Like, the, just the language that generally, and it, I like to think of it as like, it's the barbecue conversation that we never get past. It's the, oh yeah, hmm. good weather this week. Did you see the footy game? And then maybe there's like one line about the news, but no one gets past that conversation. Yeah. You know, it's all sort of stuck there. And it's actually when we get past that conversation, that's when we talk about the good stuff. Yeah. And that's when we open up, we're a bit more vulnerable. That's when we can have the meaningful conversations. And, and I don't think, in the past, parents would have got past that conversation with their kids. Yeah. If at all. And sharing vulnerability? Oh, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. And I think we can. And maybe we just need to, you know, maybe you and I should write a book about um, things to talk about after you talked about the footy scores. Uh, <laughs> well, um, one of the questions I did sort of stick a pin in, I wanted to touch on yeah. vulnerable narcissism. Like, what is that? Like, I mean, what's your actual definition of that? Uh, I don't remember the definition per se. So. Oh, how, do, how do you think of it? <laughs> yeah, sure. So there's a lot of people who are narcissistic in the world and for the most part we're familiar with the grandiose narcissist because they stand out. But in our society we also have a lot of people who have a very insecure but very high opinion of what they are and what they do and that's very vulnerable. So when it's attacked... Those people go into crisis mode. Now, if they are of a certain size or gender, um, they're much more likely to engage in physical aggression um, for some of them. Now, um, I'm part of a World Health Organization body on violence, and we actually put suicide within a lot of that. And I know we've been talking for a long time and we haven't talked about suicide, but I think it's a really crucial um, element. But sometimes those people will commit suicide because their narcissistic personality So their ego cannot. has just been just impacted so much or undermined so much in their, mar- in their yep. view that they feel they can no longer Absolutely. carry that forward. But if you come across these people, 
be very aware that you're probably never going to change them. And they come from a place of trauma. But the most important thing you can do is look after yourself um, and don't attack them. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not going to work for you. Just protect yourself. And, and so, you know, there's not a lot of them, but there is an increasing number because of the type of trauma and the psychological trauma that creates them much less than the physical trauma. Yeah. Um, but it is, a, it is a particularly sort of toxic personality and we're seeing more and there is more people like that. It's not a plague. <laughs> I'm not saying like that. Yeah, but it, it certainly sounds like there's a fragility to that. Yeah, and, yeah. We, and we find a strong relationship to aggression there because when it's challenged, particularly if there's alcohol involved and there's social situations and there's a sense of shame, it's kind of the perfect cocktail. Is it kind of like the, the Michael Douglas falling down character absolutely wow so much so much of what i unpack here Pete. but i know yeah. we've been going a long time yep. is there anything like you'd like to just say as a final sort of wrap up like takeaways or even exciting things you you're looking forward to in the future in this area look i'm i mean like i said i wish i could hit for, fast forward on our students who are doing relational aggression work I think um, understanding the impacts of that, but also the causes behind that, the the narratives of people saying um, uh, it's all about power. Well, again, for me, you only desire power over things you fear. I think it's really important to understand where these fears are coming from and what we can do to try to reduce them. Um, and I think you know my take-home message is. Um, the world is changing really fast around the notions of masculinity and femininity and for the most part people are welcoming that don't be afraid of it i think it's a fantastic thing to see um and i'm looking forward to that next generation of kids who can do that and i guess you know the question of whether we need to start calling out when some old bloke gray-haired ex-rugby prop says Go on, be a man. I think uh, some of us can turn around and say, yeah, people used to think like that, but maybe do it quietly so you don't shame them. <laughs> I like it. That's a great way to wrap this up, Pete. Hey, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak today. It's been fascinating. And like I say, I, I want to, there's so much more I want to unpack here, but I'm highly respectful of your time. So yeah, I just want to say a big thanks, Pete. No, thanks, Rich. It's been great. It's been great fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Pete. If you'd like to catch up with him, you can find him on Twitter at Peter underscore G underscore Miller. And I'll put links on the Dad Mindset website in case you'd like to connect with Peter via LinkedIn as well. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it, the best way to help is to share an episode with someone who you think would also appreciate it. Also, if you can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, that'd be super helpful too. Anyway, until we meet again... Hang on in there. Hope you have a great rest of your day. And as ever, enjoy your caffeinated beverage.